science story, huh? Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about parents which feels appropriate because just last week I was in my family's hometown of Charleston hosting our first ever show in West Virginia. It's the first time my dad and my grandmother got to see one of our shows, and my grandmother's primary feedback to us was to inform us that my co-producer for the show, Nissa Greenberg, is, and I quote, a real good-looking guy. (laughs) So, in case you were wondering if we employ handsome boys at the Story Collider, the answer is in fact yes, apparently. I would actually go as far as to say that we are all adorable. Mama Barker guarantees it. Now, we have two stories for you today about other people's parents and the ways that those relationships have intersected with science. Our first story is from Dan Souza. It was recorded in April 2018 at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at our show in conjunction with the Cambridge Science Festival. So my mom uh, is an incredible cook, really, really great cook, um, but she's also a nurse. And that might not sound like a contradiction, but just, uh, just stick with me. So growing up, my mom would you know, work really long hours at the hospital. She'd come home and she was kind of you know, an every woman, so she would also make dinner for us, uh, for my dad, my sister and I. And we'd sit down, I think like a lot of families um, do, and you know, pretty much every night sit down to really, really great food. So, you know, she cook all kinds of things, really comforting stuff. My favorite was probably her, uh, her main clam chowder. Just absolutely like simple, but, but delicious. And um, so we'd sit down to eat and, you know, we would just kind of all go over our days. So my sister and I would talk about school. My dad would bore everyone with some stories from the office. Um, and then it'd be my mom's turn. And she would just kind of talk about, you know, what it, she'd been going through that day. So there was... Um, you know, there was the 300-pound guy that, that got out of surgery and was in his bed and, and felt like he was strong enough and healthy enough to get out of bed by himself. Um, so, you know, just get up and then really, really bad fall. So tons of bruising, loads of internal bleeding, uh, really bad situation. Uh, or, you know, there was the woman who had to go into surgery and she needed to be intubated, which means to put a breathing tube down the throat. For a variety of really interesting reasons, she, uh, she couldn't have it go down her throat, so she had to be a nasal intubation which is a really cool technique that my mom just didn't get a chance to do very often. So it was kind of a cool experience for her. Or there was the woman who had a really bad wound that just like refused to heal. Um, and that required maggot therapy. And so uh, just quick primer on how that works. <laughs> what you do is your first step is to order the maggots from the lab. So you don't just use any maggots, you use clean maggots from the lab. Um, and then you gotta put them on the wound. So you put them on the wound and then you got to put the dressing on. And the dressing, it, there's two things that the dressing needs to do. The first is it has to be breathable, right? You don't want to kill the maggots. The second thing is it needs to seal really tightly because you don't want the maggots getting out. So anyway, you put the dressing on, you send the patient home for 48 hours. So during that 48 hours, they go to work, they eat, they get sleep with the maggots on them. <laughs> 48 hours later, they come in, and what's really cool is during that time, the maggots have eaten all the dead flesh. Um, And that's actually what's so neat about it. They don't eat the live flesh, so it's pretty painless. 
Anyways, they come in, you take the dressing off, and at that point, they've grown eight times larger than when you put them on. You get rid of the maggots. So at this point in the dinner, my mom, she'd be, she'd be eating and talking, and she, but she'd sense a change in the room, you know? There wasn't the sound of like silverware on bowls. There was no signs of active listening. You know, there wasn't, uh-huh, oh really? You don't say. So she'd look up and she would th see three just ghost white, completely blank faces staring back at her. And I would look at her and I would look down at my soup and I would think, you know, it doesn't matter how good of a cook you are, your nursing ruins everything. <laughs> And the thing is, it didn't just happen to like the immediate inner family. This spread out. And so I remember as a kid running around outside with a bunch of friends and uh, my mom would call us in to have some lemonade or iced tea. We'd sit down at the table and uh, you know, we'd be kind of drinking and, and, and hanging out and she would just reach over to my friend's arm and like give it a, a slight turn. And she'd be like, ooh, look at that vein. I could easily get a needle or an IV in that anytime. That's a great vein. My friend would just like look over me like completely shocked and I would just like try to melt into my seat and disappear. I mean, she stocked our house with surgical grade shears, band-aids, gauze, every, I mean, stuff to make a cast. Like she had the entire place just like stacked with hospital stuff. I'm pretty sure that like 10 wounded Union soldiers could have shown up at the house. We could have kept them alive for like a month on just what she had in like the bathroom cabinet. She banned the terms crap, poop, and number two if you were sitting down to go to the bathroom, you were having a bowel movement. BM if you wanted to be really casual. So this was like, this was the nurse level living. And, and so she even, you know, moms leave notes around the house a lot. They put them in your lunch, they leave them everywhere. So many medical abbreviations and like just straight up Latin that like no one could read them. So I grew up a lot of, you know, I spent a lot of my time not really appreciating that my mom was a nurse and a lot of times being grossed out and not really, not really wanting to be around it. Um, but it all changed uh, when I was about 12 years old. And so my sister and I had some friends over. we were outside playing in the yard. And for a reason that uh, we'll never know, my dad, uh, who has like a kind of a ride on tractor or lawnmower thing, was letting us uh, use it and drive it around. And um, so one of my sister's friends was driving and one of my friends was doing this really fun thing where you kind of like, it's like a slow speed, you know, accident waiting to happen and you're just kind of out in front of it like, don't hit me, don't hit me. And the funny thing is that she hit him. <laughs> and um, so the front wheels rolled over his body. And then at that point she realized something wasn't right. And so she, she took her foot off the throttle. So the tractor is just, you know, sitting on top of my friend and it is just mayhem. You have like 12 little kids screaming and crying and pointing. No one's really handling the situation very well. My mom comes out of the house and she triages the shit out of the situation. So kids, get away. You call 911. You, two strong neighbors, come over here. Lift the tractor at these two points, pick it up. My friend's like about to start moving. She jumps on him, tractions the leg, stabilizes it. EMTs arrive. She briefs the EMTs on the situation, pack them up on the stretcher. She's in the ambulance, gone. And she just leaves behind the scene of like tear stained cheeks and like trembling kids in her wake. And I was like, huh, okay. Having a mom as a nurse is a pretty cool thing. And then there was the time that I had to have penis surgery. Yeah, so quick primer on how that works. <laughs> Most penises um, have a, you know, a, an arrow straight urethra, right? That's where, the, that's where the pee comes out. 
Mine had this really funny little uh, difference where at the end, where it should be straight, it just curves down. Just a tiny little difference. Uh, actually makes a really big difference, though. It would basically, I'd stand up to go to the bathroom and aim right at that toilet bowl, but it would just shoot right at my feet. <laughs> it was like a little bit of a prank penis situation, um, which was really fun. So, so I had to get that fixed, right? And my mom was with me from the moment I started this process to the time that I was like fully healed. And um, penis surgery is, is painful, if you guys uh, might not have guessed. And so I went into the hospital, you know, to, to first, it was, I was young, so I had a consultation and they let me pick out the smell of the anesthesia that I was gonna have. And then, you know, then I had to go in for the surgery and she was with me right until I went into the operating room. On the other end, she was there when I got out. And the amazing thing about having a mom who's a nurse in the hospital is she knows, I mean, this was her hospital, so she knows all the other nurses. She knows the doctor. She can get things done whenever it, whenever it needs to be done. Um, so she was with me the whole time. She was even instrumental when we got home. She worked with my dad on this ingenious device. Um, so it was, it's really painful to have a bunch of blankets on this area um, after you've had penis surgery. So she and my dad designed this, this basically paint bucket cut in half that made a nice arch that I could put over there for when I, for when I slept. Um, and so it really did pay to have, have a nurse in that case. Um, so anyway, so my mom, you know, nowadays she's, she's not nursing professional anymore. She's retired. And in this kind of like awkward twist of, I guess, how life works, she's going to the hospital a lot more than she used to, but because she's older, because she needs to go there. And um, so she recently went in, she had to get um, a knee surgery, which I mean, on the scale of surgeries, it's not penis surgery, but, um, <laughs> but it's painful, it's very painful. And so there's this thing with my mom that really sucks is she, she can't take opioids. She can't take those really powerful pain meds that most people rely on after they have a surgery. So, but she had to get it, get it done. So she went in and had the surgery and um, you know, she, she went through it and they give you this nerve block when you go in um, for the surgery. So you basically cuts out all, all feeling in your leg and that wears off after you know, maybe 12 hours. Then the pain sets in and that's usually when you take Percocet and Vicodin and all these strong drugs. And she went to just Advil. Um, so I went in to visit her after she was kind of you know, awake and, and everything in the hospital. She only let me stay for five minutes and then she told me to leave. And for anyone who knows my mom, that's not like her. She's the warmest person, wants people around. And I could just see in her eyes that she was in so much pain. And I could tell that she was a little bit scared too because this was just the beginning. She had to heal a lot in the hospital and then go home and do a lot of physical therapy. She had to get her knee from just you know bending 90 degrees, which wasn't too bad, all the way to 120 degrees, which is what you need for normal function. And you're really just grinding away at it until that works. So she was in the hospital for a few more days. I went and visited her every time and it was again, five minutes, you gotta go. Eventually she went home and she continued the physical therapy on her own, on the Advil. She finally went into this outpatient center to do this checkup, to kind of like, you know, check her progress. And she is the hero of this outpatient center. She's now the poster child for how to recover from surgery. The doctor is like, anyone who comes in from now on, if they're like, I need more pain medicine, I can't do my PT, she's like, here is Marty Souza, and she is 70 years old, and she did it on Advil. So, I mean, I'm not surprised. She's an incredibly tough person. But anyway, so she's healed now. It's really, really great to have her back. And so we were home, you know, recently for Easter dinner, and she's cooking, and she's taking care of everyone, running around on this new knee. Um, and it's so great. And so we sit down to dinner, and it just feels like when we were kids, you know, and everyone's just kind of like catching up about what's going on. And my dad's talking about stuff, and my sister's catching us up on her kids, and... Um, you know, and then Marty's kind of just talking about things with her knee. 
And then she, you know, she lets us know that um, you know, the, the rate of death when it comes to flesh-eating bacteria jumps to about 75% when the scrotum is involved. <laughs> and I couldn't be happier about it. Thanks. That was Dan Souza. Dan is editor-in-chief of Cook's Illustrated and a cast member of the Emmy Award-winning television show America's Test Kitchen. Dan is the kitchen editor of the New York Times bestseller, The Science of Good Cooking, and the James Beard Award-nominated Cook Science. He's a regular contributor to the Splendid Table radio program, and his personal stories have been featured on the Moth Radio Hour. Our next story today is from Michaela A. Thornton. It was recorded in March 2018 at the Ready Room in St. Louis. The theme that night was Best Laid Plans. My husband Brandon and I got married later in life. Um, we met in our uh, early 30s, and we didn't get married till our mid-30s. And this is like later in life by Midwestern standards, okay, folks? Just so y'all know. <laughs> Other places in the world, it's not a big deal. Uh, but so when we got married, we were like, all right, this is awesome. And they we're like, let's have a family. And we're like, yeah. And that's the really fun part, right? The practicing to have a family part, right? The sex, right? That's good. That's really good. Um, but then after a year of really, really awesome, good, unfettered, fun times, uh, I started to kind of get really nervous and really fearful and really kind of like, oh, fuck, what's going on? Like, is there something wrong with me? And mind you, I'm not the kind of person that's like, I'm tying my worth to my ability to have a child. Like, it's never been my gig. It's never been my thing. But I started to get really fearful. And I don't know if you guys are like this, but I go to like that darkest, deepest what if. And as I'm there in that darkest, deepest what if, and we've tried for a year and nothing's happening, um, I finally get the ovaries to call a reproductive endocrinologist. And I meet with her, my husband comes with me. It's one of those like awkward moments that you feel like maybe a Coen brother film should like option. Um, oh wait, they did in Raising Arizona. But um, so you're there in the office and then they say, okay, then we're gonna refer you to have an HSG. And an HSG is this test where um, they have this radiographic dye and they put it through a catheter and it goes through your vagina, through your cervix, which is like this little beautiful donut and boom, it like illuminates all your lady bits. And you can see like if there are any problems with your uterus or your fallopian tubes, and it's like really trippy. I mean, you don't expect to see that part of you on a screen ever. <laughs> like there's a lot of things you can watch online now, but that's not one of them typically. <laughs> and so I think, oh, this is no big deal. This is like flushing a car's brake lines. Like, this is something I've seen my father do. And so I'm like, I can do this, no problem. I'm, I'm a boss lady. I'm gonna go in there and do this by myself. So I go and there are, kid you not, three male doctors, one of whom I think is a resident. And they're like, they're the gentlemen that are down with the business area. And then there's the, the, the one that's telling me in very monotone, this is what we're doing next. And I'm on this stainless steel table and my bare ass, it's cold. And you're angling your hips in the most vulnerable positions. And oh, by the way, I start to realize, oh my God, like they're gonna see if there's a problem. Like in this moment, when I'm in this room with these three men, none of whom know me or have had sex with me, they're gonna tell me what my problem is and why I can't get pregnant. And I, I start to tear up because 
you realize in this moment, oh shit, this is real. Like we're really doing this. And so one of the resident just grabs my hand, which bless his heart, someone taught him good bedside manner. And um, he starts asking me about baseball and about weather and what I do for a living. <laughs> and I'm like trying not to hyperventilate and answer his questions at the same time. And then the other two business end gentlemen are saying, oh, every, you know, the dye is flowing through. I don't see any blockages. Everything looks healthy. And at that moment, I squeezed the other resident's hand and even tighter, like probably really tight. And uh, I just kind of sigh this huge exhalation of breath. And they leave and a nurse's aide comes in and helps me clean up. And then when she leaves, I allow myself a moment to cry. Uh, it just, I thought, Jesus, if this is the first step to trying to have a baby with science, I'm in for one hell of a ride, like seriously. Um, so I walked out of that room after I took my ibuprofen and, you know, just left. And one of the things that's so difficult to explain about infertility and loss is that it underscores your mortality. More than anything, you don't really know what you're missing until you don't have an opportunity to do it or have it. And so I was watching my friends having babies and I felt this, not jealousy, but sorrow. Here me and my husband were ready, ready to have a family, loving and kind, and we had the resources to bring a child into the world but it wasn't happening for us and we felt left behind. And so as we're going through this, we start going through more and more of a weight. We have a miscarriage. We have two failed intrauterine inseminations for the uninitiated. It's what that sexy talk of artificial insemination. People often talk about turkey basters, which is factually inaccurate. I need you to all know that no turkey basters are involved. <laughs> we have timed sex craziness. If anyone's like, my ovulation, I'm ovulating, woo! And like, that's not sexy talk, just so you know. Um, it doesn't really make men real excited. Uh, I was on a drug called Clomid. It is by the devil. If you're not familiar about Clomid, it is an ovulatory drug that made my husband want to dump me in a lake. <laughs> and so finally I said, let's get a second opinion, right? Because at this point we've been trying for two and a half, three years and still no Bambino. And so we get a second opinion and this doctor who's very compassionate and thoughtful says, okay, your diagnosis is diminished ovarian reserve. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? It means I don't have a lot of eggs, folks, all right? Um, there's not a lot of um, possibilities here. And so we're like, well, what do we do next? She's like, well, if you want a biological baby, you need to do in vitro fertilization, IVF, the big guns of reproductive medicine. So I'm like kind of in this bittersweet Zen zone because at least I have a diagnosis. There's a reason for why I'm not getting pregnant, why we're not getting pregnant. And also, great. It's not because I can't relax. Like, I can't tell you how many times people will say, we just need to relax. And let me just say to you, that's the shittiest advice 
to give to anyone going through a stressful situation. Like, please write that down. Seriously, it is the worst advice to tell someone going through a hard time. And so I realized, all right, let's go for this. Like, now we've got next steps. But convincing my husband was another process. It was another story. So, you know, I said to him, why wouldn't we try this? Why wouldn't we do this? And he said, Kella, it's not that I don't want to have a baby with you. It's not because I don't love you and I don't think this is good, but like, what if it's just not meant to be? Like, very fatalistic. And I said, well, why would you say that? Like, IVF is a door. Why would you not open it? And he said, it's just a lot of expense. It's going to put your body through hell and back, and it, it possibly won't work. And he's right. Two-thirds of IVF cycles do not work on the first time. And I said, yes, it's still worth it to the person that waxes poetic about science. But despite all the medical advancements in the world, if the one you love loses hope, it's hard. So in thinking about this, I thought it'd be a great idea to tell my dad what we were up to. So my dad and I are at a diner, because we, we bond over not just cattle, but also greasy spoons. And I've ordered a, a vanilla milkshake, and I'm drinking it, and I'm telling him, I'm like, Dad, it's taking a little bit longer, but, you know, we're thinking about some other options. And my dad says, in the most tone-deaf way of trying to comfort me, well, sometimes genetic lines just die out. And I, I feel the frozen sweet cream of this milkshake go down my throat. And I think, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He has no earthly idea how hard his words hit me. And I just think he doesn't get it. He doesn't know what to say. So I said, Dad, we're trying IVF. And he said, well, try whatever experimental process you want to try. And I kind of recoiled at the word experimental, because I'm like, okay, man, this has been used, IVF, in the United States since 1981, two years after my birth. So at this point, this is a 35-year-old medical procedure. This is not experimental. And so I'm asking myself, are you going to refer to my child, if I have one, as an experiment? I'm really, really wondering about that. So finally, I convinced my husband He's on board, we're ready to rock and roll. It's June 2016. At this point, it's been three years of us trying to have a baby and also not really being super open about it, um, largely because for some people, especially in this day and age with social media, it's, it's really natural to share your progression to want a family, whether it's through biology, adoption, surrogacy, or reproductive medicine. But for me, I was pretty much a closed book. I just, I felt like my grief was amplified by not getting to that point yet. So here we are, we're doing this procedure, we're ready to rock and roll. If you're not familiar with IVF, there's a lot of medication involved. And so, so much so that I have to take it for a month plus before they can retrieve my eggs. So the doctor's office gives me a color-coded calendar that they update frequently. And I have daily bruising injections and a host of, of different types of hormones, some to suppress, some to encourage ovulatory conditions. And so we do it. We retrieve 
five eggs. Because remember, I have diminished ovarian reserve. I'm not a super producer. Like, I'm not like eggs, eggs, eggs everywhere, right? It's just, it's just five, man, five. <laughs> and of those five, three fertilize. So you're like, any of my math people here, you're like, whoa, okay. Three of those fertilized eggs, um, only two make it to day five. And five-day embryos are known as blastocysts. They're like the holy grail of awesomeness. Like you want the five-day embryos. They're the ones that are going to be much more likely to implant. So of those two, one is really badly fragmented, and that leaves one. But the heavens part, and this is the grade AA, like beautiful golden embryo of my dreams. And so my skilled and super compassionate reproductive endocrinologists implants this one, nothing left, remember, one beautiful blastocyst into my uterus on July 20th of 2016. And then I wait, we wait. We wait for approximately two weeks. I get blood work. The first test says, you're pregnant. I don't believe anything yet. Second test, still pregnant. Still not really believing, because if you've gone through infertility and loss, you're like, I'll believe it when I see it. So almost a month later, I go to the doctor's office with my mom. My husband had a work trip he could not get out of. And this time I'm holding her hand and not some strange resident's hand. And this time on the screen, we see this beautiful flickering, teeny tiny, like the size of a poppy seed heartbeat. And then the reproductive endocrinologist turns up the volume, like boom. And you see and hear like the whoosh of the ocean. That's the heartbeat. It's like making contact with another world. And I just lose it. I start to cry, cry and cry. And I keep saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, but I wish I could say that like, that was like my, woo, congratulatory, I've made it, I'm pregnant. But you know, I never felt like I was in the safe zone through my whole pregnancy. I was never the chick in that prenatal yoga class who wore a t-shirt that said, I'm so pregnant. Like, I didn't buy maternity clothes until I was 22 weeks along because I thought something could happen. I didn't want a baby shower until she arrived. And so I think that's one of the first lessons of becoming a parent, especially after infertility. Nothing is a given. So my dad and I are back at a greasy spoon. This time, we're not debating the Me Too movement or why my father thinks soccer is a socialist sport. <laughs> True story, by the way. Um, this time, my seven-month-old daughter is sitting in his lap, and he's feeding her scrambled eggs, and he keeps calling her baby Kella because she, she has a passing resemblance to her mama. And he is smitten. I mean, he is soft, he is cuddly. The gruff and the direct exterior that he exhibits with me is not on display. There is no talk of cattle. Um, <laughs> we're drinking our coffee and enjoying each other's company, and there might be some biscuits and gravy. And uh, I, I say to my dad, you know, Dad, I think sometimes I just feel like I have all my eggs in one basket. And he said, you know what, Kella, it doesn't matter if it's one or four, you always feel that way. And I thought, yeah, I'm starting to get this. I'm starting to understand a little bit where my dad's coming from. 
And by the way, my daughter's name is Lucinda. I named her after my father's grandmother, and her name literally means graceful illumination. And my daughter's existence has shown a light on so many things in my life, but especially in terms of thinking about my relationship with my dad. I have to think what must it have felt like to hear your child tell you about a challenge that you have nothing to offer in terms of guidance, in terms of understanding. I think about how perhaps the thing that he really struggled with wasn't that genetic lines are going to die out potentially, but that his own genetic line is going to end. That his own mortality awaits. And so I make this moment in my mind while we're in this little diner, and I look at my daughter, and I make a silent pro promise to myself. I say to her, you are not your ability to procreate. You are loved, and you are whole. Thank you. That was Michaela A. Thornton. Michaela's essays and flash prose have appeared in New South, The Southeast Review, The New Territory Magazine, Midwestern Gothic, and a University of Missouri Press anthology, Words Matter, Writing to Make a Difference. Her daughter, Lucinda, is one year old. StoryClider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Eli Chen, and Zach Stovall, with help from Katie Wu. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Oberon and the Ready Room for hosting these shows, and to all of the parents and grandparents out there. Thank you for listening to The Story Collider, where the women are strong, the men are good-looking, and the storytellers are above average. <laughs>